Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number nine of Not Knowing About Poetry, a podcast series that's all about sitting down and doing some reading. Maybe listen to someone else instead. And I've realized that in recent episodes, I've been forgetting to emphasize the current purpose of this podcast, which at the moment is very specifically to think about what relatively recent poetry makes out of the poetry and drama of the early modern period. That's a specific line of inquiry. Some people might call it a bit niche, but it feels to me like an important line of inquiry in some ways. Um, by talking about it here, it also means I get to free up my mind to think about other things which I'm, I'm personally quite grateful for. It's a space where we spend plenty of time enjoying poetry, enjoying thinking about poetry, um, for dialogue and the shared pleasure of discovery and interpretation. But it's also a place where that pleasure and excitement comes out of quite a serious understanding of the importance of poetry. So we're doing this because we like poetry, but also because we do believe in its serious importance. So today we've got kind of a special episode because it's the first time we've repeated a poet. So I've deliberately not chosen two modern poets to do previously. But after last time that Joey came on to talk about Pearls That Were by J.H. Prynne, we just felt there was so much to do, so much interesting material that Prynne threw up that it was impossible or at least ill-advised to, to let the opportunity go to, to do some more. So we've decided today to come back to do some more Prynne um, and we've gone back to a kind of classic collection, I think it's fair to say, The Over Window from 1983, uh, and a poem from that collection, which references very, very extensively the play All's Well That Ends Well by William Shakespeare. When I first realised that Prynne was quoting this play, I assumed that we'd be dealing with some relatively well-trodden paths of Shakespearean um, popular verse. In fact, it turns out this is quite an obscure corner of Shakespeare, as obscure as Shakespearean corners can get. So it's gonna be really exciting to work through the Shakespeare and then get into the oval window and see what Prynne makes out of it. So we're not gonna go on with much more of an introduction. Let's get right into Shakespeare and get started because that's gonna be our orientation today. So All's Well That Ends Well, a play that's really not performed a lot, a play that doesn't have a massive critical reception. It's got a critical reception, of course, that I'm, I'm only just dipped my toes into. Um, but whereas some plays perhaps submerge the, the general misogyny of early modern culture a little bit more deeply, this is one that wears that misogyny right on its sleeve. You cannot avoid um, talking about virginity in quite weird ways. Um, reading it for the first time, you know, I'm ashamed to admit it wasn't Joey's first time, but it was mine. Um, I could see why this hasn't really made it onto any A-level syllabuses that I'm aware of, or to say nothing of GCSE syllabuses. 
So all's well that ends well begins in France, where the elder Count of Roussillon has died. His wife the Countess, his son Bertram, and his adopted daughter Helen are in mourning along with the rest of the court. In the opening scene, Helen confides to the audience her unrequited love for Bertram and determines on a plan to help cure the King of France of a persistent fistula, using the medicinal recipes given to her by her own deceased father. She accomplishes this task quickly and in return from the king only asks that she is allowed to marry Bertram, a favour which the king readily grants her. Bertram, a pretty unlikable character, agrees to do so in principle, but out of sight of the king he declines to sleep with Helen and insists that they will never be properly married until she is pregnant with his child and when she has a ring from his finger that he never takes off. Shortly after the cure of the king, Bertram and many young Frenchmen go to Italy to support Florence in battle against Siena. The French turn out to be helpful and the war is soon over, freeing up Bertram and his friends to flirt with whatever Italian girls they can find. Bertram's attention has been particularly taken by Diana, but unbeknownst to him, Helen is also in town disguised as a pilgrim and lodging with Diana and her mother. Helen persuades Diana to help perform a bed trick on Bertram. Diana, who, by the way, has got no interest in sex whatsoever, will promise to meet Bertram at night in her bedroom, but Diana and Helen will swap places at the last minute, allowing Helen to have sex with Bertram. Helen then fakes her own death, giving rise to the scene that we will talk about today, where the Countess, her courtier, Le Fou, and her clown or fool, Levache, all mourn in their ways for Helen. But the title of the play is soon realised when Helen returns to court and Bertram immediately agrees to marry her. You're going to hear me being the Countess and Lavatch. So maybe I'll, I'll mention the first time I'm the Countess and then the first time I'm Lavatch to differentiate and Joey's going to be uh, Lefou. So you're welcome to follow this along. I think it's a standard text, no, no big variations. Um, let's see what we do with it. So I'll, I'll begin as Lefou. No, no, no. Your son was misled with a snip taffeta fellow there, whose villainous saffron would have made all the unbaked and doughy youth of a nation in his colour. Your daughter-in-law had been alive at this hour, and your son here at home, more advanced by the king than by that red-tailed humble bee I speak of. I would I had not known him, that's the Countess. It was the death of the most virtuous gentlewoman that ever nature had praise for creating. If she had partaken of my flesh and cost me the dearest groans of a mother, I could not have owed her a more rooted love. Twas a good lady, twas a good lady. We may pick a thousand salads ere we light on such another herb. So now it's Levatch speaking. He replies, indeed, sir, she was the sweet marjoram of the salad, or rather the herb of grace. They are not herbs, you knave. They are nose herbs. I am no great Nebuchadnezzar, sir. I have not much skill in grace. Whether dost thou profess thyself, a knave or a fool? A fool, sir, at a woman's service, and a knave at a man's. Your distinction? I would cousin the man of his wife and do his service. So you were a knave at his service indeed? And I would give his wife my bauble, sir, to do her service. I will subscribe for thee. Thou art both knave and fool. At your service. No, no, no. Why, sir, if I cannot serve you, 
I can serve as great a prince as you are. Who's that? A Frenchman? Faith, sir. He has an English name, but his physiognomy is much hotter in France than here. What prince is that? The Black Prince, sir. Alias the Prince of Darkness. Alias the Devil. Hold thee, there's my purse. I give thee not this to suggest thee from my master thou talkst of. Serve him still. I am a woodland fellow, sir, that always loved a great fire. And the master I speak of ever keeps a good fire. But since he is the prince of the world, let the nobility remain in his court. I am for the house with the narrow gate, which I take to be too little for pomp to enter. Some that humble themselves may, but the many will be too chill and tender, and they'll be for the flowery way that leads to the broad gate and the great fire. Go thy ways, I begin to be aweary of thee, and I tell thee so before, because I would not fall out with thee. Go thy ways, let my horses be well looked to, without any tricks. If I put any tricks upon them, sir, they shall be jade's tricks, which are their own right by the law of nature. A shrewd knave and an unhappy. And there's more to the scene, but I reckon let's let's crack on talking about it because that gives us enough to work with. Later, we see a bit more about LeFou and his kind of, you know, his, his trying to, to get, get ahead for his daughter. But I think that gives us enough to work with that sort of 60 lines. And reading it over again, I'm I'm just struck with sort of what I put, what, what I got from looking at a few performances, or a few amateur performances, actually. Um, in the last week, which you've been able to get online. It's difficult to get like a sort of really good film version because I don't think there, there is one or, or many. Um, and that's judging the, the tone of this scene and that speech about being a woodland fellow in particular. A lot of performances choose to cut this and I can, I can understand why. Um, it's just difficult to pitch. And uh, Northrop Fry just in, in some random criticism I've, I've picked up, compares the scene like this to a scene, uh, to a speech from Comedy of Errors where one of the servants gets really annoyed and like says, right, I've had enough. It doesn't sound like that kind of scene. It doesn't sound like someone who's just kind of having enough and storming off, but maybe that's part of it as well. I mean, what I sense from, from Lavatch is, I mean, at first he's performing the kind of, the kind of classic, uh, clown role. So, you know, the, what, the role of the clown is always partly to be irreverent, to say the unsayable, to have a kind of perverse wisdom, uh, but also to, but, but to be able to, like, a kind of vent for, for, for humour and dissent and, and so on in relation to these lords. He's, he's given a lot of license. I feel like he's really taking issue with, with a few. He's kind of, there's a sense of a few is being pompous here. And this is partly me assuming that Lavatch, uh, we haven't, I think we don't think we've specifically mentioned he, he is sort of from the Bertram and Bertram's father's household. So it's likely that he's known Helena all of her life, um, as he will also have known Bertram for most of his life, or if not all of it, right? He's, he's really Bertram's father's clown. And that's, that's, that is actually an interesting point, that the Countess is very clear about it. That the, I think the Countess find, finds him very annoying. And in many respects, he's like a particularly annoying clown. 
um, in this play, but she's really clear that it's a, it's he's, he's kind of a relic from the past. So There's saw... the line immediately after where we finished, my lord that's gone, made him made himself much sport out of him by his authority, he remains here. You know, this is, she doesn't like Labatch, is what she yeah. says. And I, yeah, and I sort of certainly take your point about the irreverence and like uh, Lear's, in King Lear, the fool says, um, I, they'll have me whipped for speaking true, they'll have me whipped for lying. Um, so these sorts of clown figures, fool figures or whatever, um, you know, have that slightly um, tense relationship with their superiors where, uh, or at least Lear's fool does, someone like Best Day and Twelfth Night doesn't really so much. Um, when they, you know, they might be in this preferential position, but also are in a position to be be told off. Now, okay, so I can take a point about him being sort of irreverent. And I, I quite like that idea of him being in mourning at this moment, because I think that enables a sort of more cynical edge to come through. But it's when we get, when we get to this particular speech where he says, I am a woodland fellow, which is the speech that Prynne will work with, I, I feel you might want to go back and pick on something else as well. Um, I wonder how that, whether that tone continues, what's going on there? Or is there something, is there some other bearing that we need to pick up before getting on to I Am A Woodland Fellow? Yeah, I just, I guess I wanted to think about what immediately follows, um, you know, dost thou profess thyself a neighbour a fool, if you says. And then, and then there's this riffing about, uh, a fool sir at a woman's service and a knave at a man's. Um, and he goes on to basically say that he would, that he, that he would, um, I would cousin the man of his wife and do his service. So he's doing this riff about, I would, I would kind of cuckold the aristocrats, which I think is, a, is an important framing to what he then later says. That to me reflects the undercurrent of animosity about this overall situation. The easiest option is to see these as sort of throwaway lines, isn't it? It's easy to see it as like, oh, he's making a cuckold joke, like every single play in the early modern period. Um, okay, but I, but yeah, I, 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 I do take your point that it's maybe more of a challenge than like that the throwaway line. I read it as quite bitter, I think, and I might be overstating that, but Levatch is saying. All right, I, I'll you know I'll serve you. Few saying, oh please don't serve me because I don't want you to uh, sleep with my wife. Levatch is then saying, all right, well, I'm not going to serve you, but actually, I can serve another nobleman who's equally as prominent as you, maybe even more prominent than you. It turns out that he could serve the devil, the Black Prince the Prince of Darkness, alias the devil. And at this, I do feel like LeFeu at this point is sort of getting the willies a little bit. And if there's been a bit of a challenge earlier in the speech with this kind of to and fro, this is the point where for a, for a few seconds, it's just getting a darkness that LeFeu can't really handle. And he says, hold thee, there's thy purse. There's my purse. I give thee not this to suggest thee from my ma thy master thou talkst of, serve him still. So I'm giving you the money to carry on serving that master. I don't want you any to have anything to do with me. Um, and you could, again, this could be a throwaway line or it could be someone really getting spooked and saying, 
this fool who's an idiot and is really like just so annoying all through the play he's got maybe a more sort of satanic purpose that I don't want to have anything to do with is that a fair reading do you think yeah I, I think it is I think that the other element here is that Lefeu is actually being outwitted a little bit I read who's that a Frenchman you know he says I can serve as great a prince as you are and Lefeu says who's that a Frenchman I think Lefeu comes across like a real real unintelligent man here. So Lefou says, who's that a Frenchman you just quoted? And the sort of, the joke is that that's, that that's like his imaginative horizon. Like the the only thing he's interested in is, is competition with other French aristocrats. So he's got no conception of um, heaven and hell at this point of the play, you know, and, and you know, quite reasonably, you know, he doesn't need to until it's been introduced. Okay, but that's but this is an interesting segue into this, yeah, the, the, the fool as sort of a truth seeker or as a fool as a prophet, prophetic figure or as someone who's got a bigger vision than like anyone else in the play. We're in a register that really I only associate with the porter of Macbeth right after the, the death of Duncan, the murder of Duncan. People are knocking at the door, knock, 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 knock. And he starts by saying, here's a knocking indeed. If a man were porter of Hellgate, he should have old turning the key. So he should have had, he would have the devil turning the key. So, you know, that's the kind of position he's putting himself in. And at the end of his speech, he says, uh, this place is too cold for hell. I'll devil porter it no further. So for this moment, he's kind of appeared as like this devil porter, potentially opening up the gates of hell and, um, that's not actually happening, but maybe something a bit like that is happening, which is all the the the, the, the wildness of, of the play of Macbeth. That's not what's happening in All's Well that ends well, is it? Well, no, and indeed there's not, I mean, there's not really any chaos. There's not anywhere near as much devilish machinations at all it's, in that sense. it's The stakes are lower, I suppose. Let me just reread that speech, because I think we need to just get into the words. Even if we run over our time a little bit, we need to sort of unpick it a bit. So he says, so LeFou said, oh, here's some money, go away. Oh, I love the idea of just being excluded, but Lavatch is returning. He's, return he's not going away. He's going to say his bit. He says, I am a woodland fellow, sir, but always loved a great fire, and the master I speak of ever keeps a good fire. But since he is the prince of the world, let the nobility remain in his court. I am for the house with the narrow gate, which I take to be too little for pomp to enter. Some that humble themselves may, but the many will be too chill and tender, and they'll be for the flowery way that leads to the broad gate and the great fire. Okay, and we've got the remix, like the remixing of the Bible in there. We've got, you know, social commentary on being courtly and being kind of humble and a commoner. We've got this image of, of fire, which he really, really likes. How, how many people have you heard talking about how much they like fire? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think what happens here is partly he he reverses what, he's already made this claim, I serve, I, I don't serve you, nobleman, I serve the devil. But then he actually reverses this claim and distances himself a little bit. So he says, you know, I'm a woodland fellow that always loved a great fire, which is kind of like saying, oh, I'm just a normal bloke. You know, I, I dalliance with sin a little bit or something. This, this frame that you often see um, before a, a clever speech where someone says they're not very clever or something. There's a bit of that stuff going on. Um, but then 
then he actually says, you know, he's the prince of the world, let his nobility, let the nobility remain in his court. I'm for the house with the narrow gate. He's actually saying, okay, yes, I, I serve the devil, but but I serve him as only as, you know, a kind of humble, uh, humble woodland type of person. The people at his court, at his great fire, the people immediately surrounding him are the nobility. So he's, and this is really important, right, about the social commentary uh, and, and my sense that he's already annoyed at Le Few and that he's annoyed at Bertram. He's annoyed at the pompousness of the nobility where, where pompousness is part of what turns Bertram off Helena in the first place, his sense of his own high-bornness. He's saying, actually, the people who are around the devil are the court, the, 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 the aristocrats, right? And that's quite a pointed thing to say at this point. Okay, so and I, okay, so I'm this this speech is like finally starting to 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 come into focus. So, though the first sentence, I am a woodland fellow, sir, that always loved a great fire, and the master I speak of ever keeps a good fire. Now, has he said he does actually serve the devil? No, he says I can serve as great a prince as you are. I've got the option. I can go and serve this person. I can be his fool or do something. That's available as an option. He doesn't say he does serve the devil. Important distinction. Important distinction. Yeah. So to say I am a woodland fellow, sir, that always loved a great fire. It's very interesting statement because he's saying because of my humble social status, I would be much more likely to participate in um, satanic, uh, immoral activities. Is that fair yeah. to say? That all, I, all know, sort of, we all like a good debauch every now and again, you know what I mean? <laughs> okay, so so my, my, my relative poverty or my relative humility would dispose me to those, uh, to those activities and the, the progress that it would, it would give me. But because I'm humble, my house is too little for pomp to enter. And it will be, you know, it may be cold, but that's, you know, I've got to sort of put up with that, you know, because, I, but, but the, so, so my, my susceptibility to, to go down the wide, the wide path that leads to, to damnation, I may be susceptible to that, but it's also a function of my humility in life that I won't go down that path. And that, I think then what we, what you've already said is, is the biblical reference that comes in at the end. I take that though, these final lines, um, the many will be too chill and tender and they'll be for the flowery way that leads to the broad gate and the great fire is an echo of the kind of um, parables in the gospel about, you know, the, the, the easy path and the hard path, the easy path to hell and the difficult path to heaven. Um, right. The rough and the smooth road. So actually, he, again, he kind of does this inversion and says, well, those noblemen that they like, um, they like their comfort, they like their warmth. Those of us who can bear difficulty and humility and small cold houses, you know, are, are further away from the devil. Those people who can't bear to be uncomfortable, who actually, um, you know, have big houses and warm fires and large feasts and so on and so forth, are, you know, that is a feature of their depravity. The perceived depravity on the court of the of the court was you know, an early 17th century trope there's plenty of talk in that time period of the the depravity of court and the you know the the courtiers are bound to that that place i suppose what what really 
I found such a struggle with this speech. And I've got I'm, I really would emphasize that, that I find this speech very, very difficult to read. And like, you know, I genuinely feel like we're just we're only just getting there now. And we've, we've been talking about it quite a lot. It's the way this 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 figure of the fire works. That feels maybe what what's making it difficult for me that on the one hand I love a great fire of course who doesn't love a big fire who doesn't love to have the heating on when they when they can but then that's also the trope that signals complete damnation and I think the the overall statement is look I'm just a humble guy living my Christian life I'm I'm planning on going to heaven I'm going to be okay without any pomp I think that's a I think that's a simple meaning of it yeah i think the fire stands for you know the idea of the great fire there obviously the fires of hell but the the, in the figure in 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 figuring the fires of hell as the hearth fire of uh of of an aristocratic hall i think that really brings together uh in that image um the kind of comfort and riches with sin right that seems to me what the unity of that particular figuring of of hellfire Mm -hmm. right well okay but it's confusing because it's 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 luxury that's the problem not um basic human warmth um but if if if, it okay so it feels like the fire like the difference between like the, the the nice fire that you would have in your little house which may still be a bit too chill and tender, that's different from this grand fire in a hall that gathers all people for, for, for whatever. And I, okay, but it's not a morally loaded trope or it's not, a, at least not in this way. You know, fires, fires, you know, symbolic um, in all sorts of ways for telling the difference between luxury and basic comfort basic human survival I don't think that's it's usually coded as a way of differentiating between those things no I think that's that's kind of Lavatch's invention here or you know Shakespeare's invention through Lavatch I think yeah okay and that's but that's what and that's what makes it so interesting but so challenging for me at least I hope I'm not wrong in like being just totally bamboozled by this amazing piece of prose I find it an amazing piece of prose I don't think you're wrong at all. I think, I mean, I, I, you know, we have a, we have a reading of it here, but I think it's, he's, he's twisting and turning, right? I think part of the purpose of, of, of him as a clown is, is to, is the kind of codedness of, of his, you know, wisdom, irreverence, anger, and so on. Right. Well, look, I think the key thing, as long as we remember, like fire is going on here. Okay. So that's, a really fascinating bit of Shakespeare and I'm really glad for the discussion that has certainly moved my understanding on. We are now going to turn to Prynne and a work that I think maybe it's maybe it's not wrong to describe as like a, a modern or postmodern classic of, of poetry, 1983 Oval Window. And I don't really have a clear sense of the range of its influence or, or reception, but I've just got that impression so far. And maybe that's also bolstered by Bloodaxe bringing out a, a new edition of the Oval Window, not as part of Prynne's collected poems, um, but just the Oval Window, with a couple of introductory essays, a load of archival material from his photog- photography collection, which is fun, and, and notes on the poems, which, which makes for an amazing reading experience for a, a Prynne noob like, like myself. So we're going to be looking at that. And to introduce 
just a couple of critical comments about what reading a poem might be in general and what reading a print poem might be in general. I'm going to give a quotation from Prynne and then a quotation from Reeves and Reeve and Kerridge, who, who, who did the work on this edition. So the first quotation is from Prynne's 90-page commentary on George Herbert's poem Love Three, the third love poem that Herbert wrote. And as that commentary draws to a close, he starts to consider that poem as, and I quote, a method to think with, to define and hold within attention its occasion and thematic idea that can carry through intact its spiritual passion and the crossing paths of encounter without deflection from its own central issues of thought and understanding, without obviousness, but equally without loss or blurring of purpose. So he is talking about an early modern text there from you know, 400 years ago, but in that text, he's seen it going off in a lot of different directions over those 90 pages. Now he's making the claim, which is slightly contrary to uh, everything he's, he's gone before, that it makes its claims um, without obviousness, but also without loss or blurring of purpose. So I'm interested to know, is that a way of reading Prynne's poetry, that they're, they're very diffuse, they're all over the place, but They've got a purpose there that we can we can read and we can talk about. On the other hand, we've got this quote from 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 Reeve and Kerridge that Joey is going to read out. So this is um from an essay of theirs on the oval window, but summarizes I think in general how they think one might read Prin. They say, sustained readings of texts so unstable and elusive can induce a kind of vertigo, a sense indeed of pressing on through a dis disorienting darkness. The mind is never quite sure whether it can adjust rapidly enough to meet each fresh challenge or how much it can afford to overlook in the interests of staying lucid. But the shifts and turns also bring moments of bright exhilaration, of tantalizing, and exasperating beauty. And I, I guess what one of the reasons I was interested to read that is because in contrast to the print on Herbert, where he talks very much about, um, you know, without deflection from central issues of thought and understanding, this emphasizes what Prin also describes as the crossing paths of encounter, right? A lot of the reading of Prin is all about crossing paths of encounter, those things which drift, drift across the reading consciousness and um, make connections, but it's always seen as very de-centered, which is kind of the exact opposite of what he says a poem might be in relation to Herbert. Um, and I, I wonder if it can be both of those things or if we can find provisional centers or something, or at least um, kind of kernels of intensive thought in print that aren't just that aren't just scattered as our reading may be scattered. Great. And I think um, it's interesting that you, you introduced that word intensive um, because that's that's made, that's a point he makes on the same page as the quotation that I read, that um, the hardest and most important thought is not extensive, but intensive and can be brought decisively to a sovereign portion of acknowledgement. Well, 
we're going to come back to this later because there's <laughs> loads and loads of things we can say. But I, yeah, it's weird because I can feel, I feel there's like truth in both of those statements, and 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 I recognise both of those statements in print. So we might think of the oval window as being one long poem broken up into lots of different pages that are kind of separated, almost as like a weird little sonnet sequence. Um, we're going to focus on one little bit of that from what what might be seen as the middle of the collection. I think it's uh, useful to think of it as the middle. Um, this longish text compared to the ones around it that starts at the onset of the single life. This marks a sort of movement from the first half of the book which is really really difficult to read and talks a lot about fire um, and quotes from really a wide range of material to the second half which has a lot more to say about snow and cold and quotes a lot from ancient Chinese poetry. Sometimes a page will be made up almost entirely of quotations from, from ancient Chinese poetry, which is really, really interesting. So there's various things going on about the interrogation of lyric as a form, um, about the use of quoted, quoted material and what that means. This kind of falls right in the middle. He's quoting early modern texts all the way through, especially these song texts. I think that's maybe another podcast to go on Prynne and Song and Dowland. He also quotes from Masks by Johnson, which is, is interesting. This poem, he's dealing in intensive and extensive detail with the short speech we read from All's Well that ends well, the I Am Woodland Fellow speech. So I think Joey is going to read us this text, let's just call it a text, um, about two pages long. It'll be great. Cool, okay. Um, at the onset of the single life, it is joined commonly to what is untasted, lettered out along the oval window's rim. And casting the eve forward in the first delivery you do know, this talc in breath, marking the helm wind as it cools. It fans the rim on the inside of the purlin itself. The tenon gives back exactly your life task for the trained level. Grind up to the hatchment there. They are later as to the perfect plank. No time first round, first leg, with dearer love, he too could only panic through the medium. Hold your chin to the relief coach. I am a woodland fellow, sirloin parted formerly, that always loved a great fire. The window glints now in the lee wave, fed with light upended, crepe put out on the hives. Life cover streams under, the master I speak of, ever keeps a good fire. Give a low whistle, such country cannot be burnt, fit the rebate, but sure, he is the prince of the world. We will cast on the low half then and find out the neural crest below, an inquest wrought with frost without, snow marking on the run to try, the spoil and waste in a white suit. Speak truly along the lip there, let his nobility remain in court. I am for the house again, and the egg timer, give the sweet air, back as nipped by the bud of ruin, three to one herring. Arms in sissel with the narrow gate, overarched, knocking at the septum, which I take to be too little for pomp to enter. A pleasant fee, their faces apart eaten. This is the place where, deaf to meaning, the life stands out in extra blue. Some that humble themselves at the songbook may, 
turn the page enchanted, but the many will be too chill below in profile and tender limbed in the foil wrap. They'll be for the flowery way and draw a sharp breath by flutter action. Do it quickly, tongue tied. That leads to the broad gate and the great fire and deaf to the face, soundlessly matched to the summit, we go over. The dip stands down in the oval window in the blackened gutter stop of the newly born. You know, like just having worked quite intensively on this for, for a few weeks now and the collection, what we read from, from Reeve and Kerridge, moments of bright exhilaration of tantalizing and exasperating beauty. Absolutely agree with that. There's just it captures it, doesn't it? There's something really searing about I think what this collection has brought to light is the sort of the power of imperative verbs. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. To yeah, you. powerful, isn't it? And I think, I mean, partly this this um, collection, or at least the bits that go before it, have a you in them quite a lot as well. They actually, they are quite, it is quite full of address. Um, and obviously that, you know, give a low whistle addresses the reader, um, kind of interpolates the reader. It has possibly the implicit narrative, you give a low whistle or something as well, you know, so... Yeah, that there is a kind of um, address in in something which also could possibly be be description. And I, I yeah yeah I think that's that's worth pointing out about the use. And I think uh, yeah just sort of flicking through again, you know, I've got um, what have I got underlined here? Something like a few pages earlier, um, you must choose the order of choice on the nail from which shadows hang. Uh, I think that might be a quotation. That sounds like a quotation from something else. You must choose the order of choice. Um, but that's part of the challenge that this poetry is making, that it's it's leaving it's it's leaving a lot up to you. Okay, well, that's like a banal comment about poetry. <laughs> um, but there's no I, there's no I speaking, I think. Um, or at least, in fact, when, when an I comes in, and in fact, you, you've mentioned the you, but also this is a big poem for I. I think there is an I... Um, that comes here and there in the collection. Um, but maybe this is one one moment where so there's a sustained eye in a poem, or a, I'm sorry, I'm re, I, I keep calling it a poem, but a part of the poem. I think it's, it's reasonable to call it a section. But then that's a complete quotation um, from, from All's Well That Ends Well. My understanding, and I, I may be wrong, and real printheads may uh, put me off on this, but I don't think an eye comes in before that point. I think I am a woodland fellow is the first first person pronoun we have in the oval window. No, page. No, no, no. no am sorry, I wrong? Uh, am I wrong? Yeah, um, I'm finger perfect by the yard, not like the ancient sponges putting in question another glad hand from the puppet dictator. Um, so it, I think my mistake. OK, you, you're, you're right that there's not much of an appearance of an eye. I think that's the, in the first half of the collection of the, the book. I think that is the only I. And then in the second half, which is a, which has more um, pretensions to lyric, more of an affectation of lyric. There's more of an I in that. Mm. But this is this is so this is maybe the second time it's come in. Um, but it's uh, yeah, the I certainly hasn't been a part of the first half of the collection that's preceded it. Shall we? Should we go to the start and just sort of see if we can make our way around it? At the onset of the single life, it is joined commonly to what is untasted, let it out along the oval window's rim. 
and casting the eve forward in the first delivery, you do know this talc in breath, marking the helm wind, helm, helm wind as it calls. So, onset of the single life. Is this Prince divorce collection? I, I wish I knew more about the history so we could give that reading because I love a gossipy <laughs> reading. But certainly, I, I mean, I think I, I read this all the way through kind of properly and sustainedly yesterday. And I felt in what leads up to this, the, the, the kind of you figure that he addresses, if we can read it as, as somewhat coherent, feels, for one thing, quite lonely. There is a sense in what goes before it of, of um, lonely, lonely struggle. And I think some of those lines you quoted convey that, but um, I'm just gonna make that claim. I'm not gonna find a quote that backs it up because we could go back and forth forever, but I'm gonna make that claim that there is something of that um, in there. Obviously the single life might be divorce, might be you know, beginning to be single, but it also could be, um, the onset of a life that's which is to say birth uh and i think it's really important that the poem ends in the black and gutter stop of the newly born that to me so we have birth but also just like at the beginning of, of being a singular being in the world right there's something about something in this whole collection about perspective um the idea of the over window and idea of perspective um is that several things but one of them is like ways of perceiving which seems partly to do with uh, the, the kind of singularity right yeah. so that's all there at the start for me <laughs> yeah okay so let's let's stick with that gloss of the first line the onset of the single life we could be talking about birth it in the second line we we, we talked about this when we before we started that it's a it's a nice trick for making something obscure we don't know what the it is oh maybe it's a baby maybe it's something else but then the uh, you know, I think your your idea about the loneliness is 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 interesting because that sort of qualifies a theme of um, you know fragmentation and joining, which is also a part of the um, collection. Uh, so the very first page of of, of the text um, says the sh the shut inch lively as pin grafting leads back to the gift shop at a loss for two ply particles, set callow, set bland and clean. And um, sorry, maybe read too much here, but pin grafting, you know, you've got a sort of a method of um, grafting, of bringing two things together in a slightly arbitrary but productive way. Um, so maybe we've got another, a revisiting of that topic now to be joined commonly to what is untasted and lettered out along the oval windows rim. So, that's a nice addition there. We're going to have to talk about what the oval window is. All right. So <laughs> the the oval window first. Well, whatever. There's no particular order to this, but we are talking about a window and perhaps a very, very, very specific window that we might not even recognize immediately as a window that part of the the, the research or preparation for this volume was Prin visiting the the sites of these ruined huts in um, in North Northumbria or uh, Cumbria, far north, 
Yeah. Um, let's check that again. Uh, and the, the 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 Reeves and Kerridge edition is really nice because they actually include a lot of his photographs of these huts. And he's clearly got this 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 interest and this obsession with the with a few sort of little holes are made in these huts as perhaps viewpoints, perhaps ways of looking out. Um, and maybe if we knew more about the 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 archaeology um, and architecture, we'd be able to see that. So these are windows that don't necessarily look like windows, but he loves and he's got these pictures of this this little gap in the wall that you can see through into the fairly bleak countryside beyond. So that's one version of the oval window. Yeah, and then it is also in classic print fashion uh, a piece of a, a kind of scientific language. It refers to the uh, fenestra vestibuli, which is a part of the inner ear, and specifically um, a, a very small part of the inner ear, filled which contains um, kind of free-floating crystals, and the movement of these crystals in relation to pressure and gravity and so on is um, partly like how we maintain balance uh, and figure out our relationship to the, the ground and the air. Um, yeah, and I think that's, I think those two things are really important for my initial claim that we have something to do with singularity and perspective and modes of perception, right? So the, the, the oval window in the sense of the, um, both the window in the hut like that which one looks in and out of from a fairly, uh, potentially fairly like singular life, as, as certainly as I read the relationship of that notion in the early poem, but also um, uh, a kind of quite complicated and mode of sensory perception of, of like our place within the world. I mean, one word that sort of struck me as reading is this word vantage. Um, Comes up comes, a lot, doesn't it? It comes up, a, yeah. It comes up a few times, and again, in that, in that sort of first page, um, it's what can't be helped is the vantage, private and inert. Um, what can't be helped, you know, uh, you know, it's beyond, it's beyond help, it's beyond repair, um, or you know, it's too bold, it's too excessive. You know, we 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 can't do anything about that. Um, this vantage has got a status in the. The collection okay but that's coming in through the ear in this particular part of the text um so there's a connection between what's going on physiologically in your ear and the the, the balance and the vision that you have casting the eve forward in the first delivery you do know this talc in breath marking the helm wind as it calls So we've got first delivery. So the sense that it might be a birth we've got in there. We've got the birth, but then we've also got the architectural, which becomes an important metaphor, right? So like obviously the oval window is a, is a window and like we've had windows. This is the first appearance of that formulation, but we've had windows loads before. Um, and then, and I think this starts to bring us into the possible relationship with the Shakespeare, this stuff about like houses and huts um, in relation, but like, the eve um, is is the, the the second indication of that, like as a as a structural metaphor of like the shape of the roofing, um, something to do with like protecting oneself. The helm wind, and so I get the image here of like wind blowing in through a window, shelter, and so on. Yeah. Um, 
yeah and and marking as it calls so we've got i don't know sort of bringing in the i mean it's a simple point but like the warm and cold is obviously is an important part of this collection an important part of what we're going to to read so yeah and so that that architectural point is a useful one to make and it's it, it's not obvious as we go on because we get in the next stanza it fans the rim on the inside of the pearl in itself the tenon gives back exactly your life task and the train level and this this is like now a fairly familiar printing of bringing in a word that doesn't sound that unusual purlin but then you look at it and think actually i've got no idea what that means and that's a um a kind of a, a, a roof timber like uh keeping your roof up um and tenon also right is a kind of joint yeah so it for me that that's the, the the element of the second stanza that he runs with there is like okay what what have we built this house like which or something that's the, like the most um obvious thematics i'm, I'm picking up yeah. initially and i find and it's that it's sort of a, for, for me it's like at that third stanza where where it gets going and we kind of get that first imperative um grind up to the hatchment there leading over to the fourth stanza grind up to the hatchment there they are later as to the perfect clank no time first round first leg and you looked up hatchment remind us about the hatchment yeah so a hatchment is a, a kind of funerary coat of arms which is to say like a coat of arms produced for a dead noble right um so and, and again that that so we we have these these are the things which start to seem related to the shakespeare this this met this possible like actual or or metaphor of the like humble woodland house which which ties into the huts of um the kind of a part of the basis for the whole work with this idea of the, the dead nobleman with the, the funeral stuff which which follows through a little later um it, we I, I start to feel like we're in the territory of Lavache's speech here a little right interesting and it's and it's interesting that we started out as sort of feeling like it's a birth poem but now it's it might be a funeral poem and we might have more to say about that in in a minute um so i'd i think it might be nice just to get onto the sort of skip onto the next stanza because i think that hatchment is important that again that very usual sounding word that we had to look up um good stuff so the next stanza we get in we start getting into the speech hold your chin to the relief coach hold you know hold your chin up keep stay cheerful that's the best gloss i could find for hold your chin but you're not going to hold your chin up you're going to hold it against this thing called the relief coach i am a woodland fellow sirloin parted formerly that always loved a great fire and we're into our speech i think this is a great act of kind of recontextualizing or i think you can read it as a kind of interpretation partly of um, certain aspects of the Lavach speech. So, um, you know, what, what this, this description of kind of humbleness uh, and the way he uses the, like, I have a small cold house and that has a particular relationship to, um, to like sin and so on. So we've had this whole thing kind of prefigured with the, this lonely, this lonely kind of subject and, 
these architectural metaphors. So then he really situates the wooden fellow kind of in the shepherd's huts that are so central to the oval window, right? It feels like that's, it's kind of bringing out that aspect of, of the speech somehow. My reaction to this though, and, and as you read it, like I was struck by it again, that the first three or four stanzas, like I find, you know, almost, you know, quite, quite, quite exhilarating really. But then these two lines, I am a woodland fellow, sirloin. I love it. <laughs> it's just, what are you up to print? Like, it's just so funny. Um, you're having, and especially having read the all's well that ends well speech, which presumably it would be very difficult to access if you're just reading the book. I'm a wooden fellow sirloin. It's very deflating. It's, um, you know, totally distracting. It's turning you away from the, the speech that you thought you were getting settled into. Um, and, we're, and we're back, parted, you know, with the parted formally, back with that theme of joining and separation. Um, so sirloin parted formally, I'm imagine, I don't know if parting is a butchery term, but sirloin certainly is. So it feels to me like, you know, this is this is a, diff, a slightly different expression of humility, where I'm just a piece of meat, um, you know, cut off from the the hide of a cow, a while ago, and I always loved a great fire. I always loved the barbecue. Yeah, um, I can't quite find a another reading of that, I suppose, but yeah, maybe. I'm I'm a simple meaty guy and I yeah and I like a barbecue is kind of a nice one I suppose but also the audaciousness right of taking sir and making it sirloin which is itself like funny and irreverent and it's a silly pun right you have I'm a woodland fellow sir like it's it's a kind of butchery itself of the Shakespeare and and he does it later on he takes tender and makes it tender limbed kind of bringing out the meatiness of of, te of, the, of tender there i think the, the meatiness and it's and it's something he does um elsewhere in the collection taking a i don't know a, a text from the financial times and then taking it in a completely um different direction um yeah I don't know, quite entertaining in itself um okay but i really like the way of sort of joining us joining us up with the, the, the previous speech, because it's so hard to keep both in your mind at once. Mm -hmm. So we then get sort of a bit more scene setting. The window glints now in the lee wave, fed with light upended, crate put out on the hives. Um, and I think we are in the territory of that, that dead master again. Um, and I think it, it, it was useful for you to point out that that bit where the countess um, talks about why Lavatch is there. Um, my lord that's gone made himself much sport out of him. I knew that was there in the play, but it is specifically in this part. Um, these, these, this, we're getting now more imagery about that dead master. The crepe put out on the hives is uh, an allusion to a slightly obscure practice, or at least in modern times, where... Um, black crepe would, would be put, literally put on hives, on beehives, when uh, a significant member of the household had died. Um, so uh, slightly rural, maybe, uh, outdated um, practices, but it's there. We're in an atmosphere of a funeral. 
even if we've got sort of the idea of birth coming along as well. And in the, the next sentence, life cover streams under the master I speak of ever keeps a good fire. Not sure I can make sense of the sentence, but of life as being a kind of wind um, coming out from underneath the, the hives, like a hive, like a swarm of bees or something. Well, well I think I like the, that thinking of life as a kind of wind because this is so full, this is like a really windy poem, right? We have the helm wind and then we have, you know, the, win the window glints in the lee wave where the lee is the side sheltered from the wind. Mm. So it really emphasizes the nature of, uh, of the like, the cons house constructed is kind of against against the wind there and we have both birth and death and so if you think of life as like a wind flowing through you actually i think i think in in your reading of that of that um that line and that metaphor kind of brings the whole thing together a little bit well and listen nice. and li i mean and listeners to the uh the podcast we did on zafar kuniel will remember that uh the word, the Greek word for wind, pneuma, is also the word for spirit. So when you're talking about wind um, and breath, yeah, so when you're talking about wind, you're talking about breath. Um, and later, we're going to get some stuff about air. And I think that kind of links to song as well. Let's see what happens. So life covers streams under, the master I speak of ever keeps a good fire. Give a low whistle. Now there's a quotation from a, from a different text, we won't go into now give a low whistle such country cannot be burnt fit the rebate but sure he is the prince of the world and i mean i'm just I'm, i mean in my copy of the text like i'm i'm they, they've done this nice thing of putting the quoted stuff in bold so i sort of can't unsee the quotation um but I, it feels I find that similarly difficult right like because we've we've I don't I don't know how I would read this if I if I was in no way familiar with all's well that ends well. But whereas in many of the other um, poems or, or kind of sections of this book, the sources are pretty obscure. It is it is quite readily. I think it's quite reasonable to expect that some portion of the readers of this with or without looking it up on the Internet may have read a wide maybe well read in Shakespeare right so these lines really stand out and I, I struggle to pass them as like connected to the poem because because they stand out as as taken from this speech and as like I mean it is the whole the whole speech is here right uh anyone who's been listening really clearly will know yeah. this he does he he's cut up the the that speech of Lavatch's but it's all there in sequence okay well i mean you try you know try this out though so something like fit the rebate but sure he is prince of the world so um rebate uh you know obviously tax rebate but um looking at my notes a rebate is also a recess or step cut along the edge of a piece of wood intended to form a joint and amazing that's great i didn't yeah, know that and um you know, so fit the rebate. Okay, that's instruction. But sure, but do it well, because you're dealing. You know, you're building a house for the prince of the world. I wonder now if what they're building is a tomb, right? He, the master, possibly dead. You know, we have the crepe and so on. We have the hatchment. You know, grind if grind up the hatchment there. 
this only occurs to me now, but I, I feel like there is some sense of, um, yeah, there is some sense of like building a, a tomb. Well, uh, build, yeah, building a memorial in some way. I mean, is it, I guess it's just weird that sort of the crepe put out on the hives um, is a description you'd expect it to be like a, an imperative, like put out crepe on the hives. Um, but I, I like the idea that sort of it's the instructions for, for building a tomb. Okay, well, that, that gives us something to work with. Um, I like that. All right, or well, I don't know, I can't help feeling given the tone of, of, of what's gone forth and the way that the he is, the he might also be the, the kind of you of earlier in the poem, this kind of uh, some of, often like lonely, but also often a kind of, there is a language of kind of craft um, and like working with yeah. one's hands alongside the language of wounds and self wounds and so on. Yeah. Okay. I feel but, like someone's building that, building their own house, which is also their own tomb or something, right? This is some of what's happening here. Okay, but I like that if we take that as, uh, yeah. I sort of keep using this phrase of theme and like I don't know, which is a very, mm -hmm. very school thing. Like, oh, what are the major themes in this poem? But I'm I'm only doing it because it sort of helps us, gives us a little something to come back to. Um, so carrying on, we will cast on then. Sorry, we will cast on the half then and find out the neural crest below, an inquest wrought with frost without snow marking on the run to try the spoil and waste in a white suit. I find that that line, we will cast on the half then and find out the neural crest below. Um, whereas some of the poem is sort of been like, what's what's going on? I've got no idea what's going on here. We're starting to get that, a slight sense of like progression and progress and you know, with a word like then, like that's, that feels like such a gift, like, okay, we'll do that. We'll um, fit the rebate. Then we will cast on the half and, and maybe cast on the half is, 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 it means something. I haven't looked it up, um, but neural, neural crest. I didn't quite get to the bottom of what a neural crest is, um, except that it's sort of important, but temporary cells that take place in embryonic development. So if you're talking about a neural crest, you are talking about like the early stages of, a, uh, of an embryo or a fetus, right? So we're back in the realm of birth. So we, we, if, we, if, we are, if we follow your reading of building the tomb, fitting the rebate um, for this mighty prince, once you've done that, then you can find out the neural crest below this weirdly biological way of talking about children. I don't know, maybe not, maybe be less weird if you had children. Well, I don't know, but the, the, it seems that the, the neural crest is partly about um, development, right? At a, at a kind of cellular biological level, but, um, I'm struck by the way the poem opens before the first poem. The oval window opens with this thing about before and after. Um, a, a, a little bit from that very first kind of page. The condition says essentially that given the present, the past and future are independent of each other. There's loads of stuff about time. So I, th I feel, um, and, and they're kind of, and a cyclical nature of time. So I feel here like we have death, birth, and the kind of harried and uncomfortable life all existing simultaneously here. And this question of like the development of an embryo is, 
is, is part of this sort of questioning of like the the being in in the world in a certain kind of a way also the question of coming on towards death altogether right so it's 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 all together but it's different tasks like and it, so it's an inquest for, <laughs> okay so finding out the neural crest below an inquest wrought with frost without snow marking on the run um it sounds pretty pretty hard work pretty desperate <laughs> you're pretty pretty grateful that there's no frost um not sure what snow marking is but i'm yeah i mean i'm just i'm just struggling so i'm, I'm grateful for your sort of making these links because we it feels like we are getting somewhere and moving forward again i'm always relieved when we get a um an imperative as i've mentioned so moving on to the next stanza speak truly along the lip there let his nobility remain in his court um i'm not quite sure what the role of speaking is here but the lip we're back with the window we're back with rims we're back with edges uh, all linking together with pronouncing something if we take lip and, and to be roughly synonymous with rim then we have a, a kind of question about that which can be the edge of the window the edge of that which can be perceived um taking window as a kind of metaphor for perception there and i think then then we have i take speak truly as a kind of question uh, this whole piece feels partly um in investigative investigative uh you know let's attempt to really deal with like the edges of these these fairly large questions about perception and and kind of the the edges of the experience of, of living you know, before the development before birth going on to death and, and and edges edges you know it's a it's again it's a trope that comes up in various ways over and over again um maybe if we lined them all up there'd be something in there Moving, <laughs> moving, sure. moving forwards again. So speak to a little bit there. Let his nobility remain in his court. Okay, so so actually we're, we're very much back in the realm of the speech of, of, of Atch's speech again. Um, you know, you speak truly, much like Lear's fool. Um, you speak truly along the lip. You let the nobility remain in his court. You speak truly here and have nothing to do with the nobility. Um, then we get the eye coming in. I am for the house again, and the egg timer give the sweet air back as nipped by the bud of ruin. And it's kind of neat again that we, or not, I don't know, neat's a bad word, but um, now discovering ways of thinking about modern day humility and domesticity doesn't talk about a fire, but talks about an egg timer. Yeah, which is I'm a like, bit lost yeah. on that stanza to be honest. <laughs> like three to one herring. What's that? Oh, okay. Um, so, so, okay, 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 okay. So that is actually a a quotation from um, a book about a book from the thirties um, about someone who was named called the King of the Norfolk Poachers, um, and scores of families and he says scores of families were brought up on turnips potatoes and bread with what was called pork lard and treacle with a with a change of herring were they a big family often as not they would have to go three of them to one herring ah okay so 
we are he's expanding on this i am for the house with the narrow gate and in in between that that bit of um the shakespeare we have this thing about which is partly about poverty a particular kind of rural poverty of a particular period which again is i think recontextualizing this idea of the the woodland fellow um in the in the wider context or, or utilizing it for the wider context of the the particular aspect of the oval window that is to do that is situated somehow within the shepherd huts of Northumberland, right? Um, yeah, so we're in a very different. We're in a very different. I mean, it's interesting that the quotation. So, these useful quotations I've got. So the the example of the the bees, the crepe on the bees, was from um, was given from Dorset. Mm. Um, the the stuff about the the wind, the helm wind. The example was taken from. Uh, the Pennine slopes in Cumberland and Westmoreland, and then the 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 three to one herring is from from Norfolk, so they're all specific, but potentially specific to one place or or, or best exemplified in one place. But I think it's perhaps interested in a, a kind of connected uh, connected ideas about ways uh, ways of living for kind of um that are now obviously kind of extinct and to, to a large extent um forgotten ways of living across the british isles um which which are kind of small scale and humble and have some relationship to like craft and and like space and land some of that feels like it's in there in here for me absolutely now joey we've been at this an hour and a half <laughs> And you know what? Every every minute we we are making progress, and every minute, like I feel like something's slotting into place. But I can I can also feel my ability to respond to this just ebbing yeah. minute by minute. So I'm starting to rely more and more on your your insights, um, which isn't fair on you. And I feel like we've we've made it through halfway, and it's been great. And maybe leaving this in a state of incompletion isn't frustrating in the way that some things would be but i feel like we might need to admit defeat for tonight let's not let's not call it defeat um let's call it an experience of um you know an experience of kind of dealing with the the largeness uh, of of prin i suppose i think um some things then i could say to draw us off a little is to re re-emphasize what I briefly mentioned about that ending. The dip stands down in the oval window in the blackened gutter stop of the newly born. Um, it brings us back to a couple of things. It brings us it brings us back to the title, which has been heavily invoked here for the first time in the collection, and all of the things that title suggests. It brings us back to birth, and it brings us back to the interest in the architectural right the blackened gutter stop of the newly born there where the where the are the like architecture is actually a, is a is a metaphor or you know of the newly born um and i guess i'd say like it, these are some of the things it brings out from from the shakespeare for me or like that relationship we have something about um 
in the hatchment, something about the land and aristocracy, something about death, which are all things that Lavach is so animated and angry about. And that here thought through the perception of the figure of, of someone who lives maybe in a different kind of a way and in a different kind of relationship to, um, to like class and like living and humility and so on. All through the question of like, what is, what is a life? What could, what a life could be? Like it does really blatantly ask that. And I know I see you grinning. It's a corny line, but it's 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 engaged in a kind of corny question, which it it, it um, freshens through mystification or something, which is perhaps what print does best. <laughs> and maybe you know, and maybe that is part of you know what I feel is the magic of it is like actually the sort of pretty accessible humanist themes are like right there and it's not addressed very obviously um with, there's no obviousness there to use Prin's word but we get a lot from it and well just like your um the quotation you drew out of Prin on Herbert is is actually much more um kind of recognizable than what we would see from Prin's writing. You know, he says, actually a poem can be something that uh, really deals with an important issue with a kind of clarity of focus, which is like, not, not what we think of as in Prin's work. I think that idea of accessible humanist themes is kind of important. Often, if you really deal with his work in depth, part of what you can pick up is like, um, kind of lyrical or, he'd probably balk at being called a humanist in any terms, but sometimes it feels like under the surface of this engaged uh, exploration and play with language, there is uh, certain kinds of recognizable and kind of sympathetic sentiment. And I think that's part of what's happening here. All right. Sympathetics with sympathetic sentiments. We will call it a night. Thank you very much, Joe, for this work on print. It might not be our last. It might be on the last on print. Let's see how we feel. Um, but that was really, really interesting. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. It came a man.